Alrighty. Welcome to the latest episode of The Peace Production, the podcast from the Organisation for World Peace, where we examine current issues threatening human security. My name is Catherine Everest. Today, myself and Andrew Bernstein speak with Dr. Serena Parekh, author of recently published book, No Refuge, and director of the Politics, Philosophy and Economics program at Northeastern University in Boston. We delve into some pretty tricky questions, largely centered around when it comes to refugees, who is responsible for their safety, security, and their ability to live what most can relate to as a normal life. Thank you so much and thank you for inviting me. Uh, so to get started, why the title No Refuge? Can you explain the meaning behind that? I'd be happy to. So I gave the book the title No Refuge because I wanted to draw readers' attention to the idea that in the 21st century, there are very few options that are actually able to provide refuge to refugees. The global refugee crisis, in my view, should be seen as a crisis for the millions of people who are forced to flee their home and actually unable to find refuge. So rather than actually being given solace, the vast majority of refugees are offered choices uh, between squalid refugee camps, urban slums, and dangerous journeys to seek asylum. And none of these actually provide refuge, so hence the title, No Refuge. And I don't think many people realize this. I have the sense that in most Western countries, we think of refugees as being largely resettled or able to return home. And if they have to live in refugee camps, it's, you know, briefly, maybe a few months or a few years. But the average length of time that people remain refugees is 17 years, and fewer than 2% are actually able to return home, and fewer than 1% are ever resettled in a given year. This is why I say that there's no refuge for refugees and why I titled my book the way I did. It's just a very long limbo period. <laughs> it's a very long limbo period. And I think we ethically have to pay more attention to this. In between time, this limbo period, we focus on solutions, resettlement, asylum, which is, of course, very, very important. We look at the crises, you know, Myanmar and Syria, and we think about the, the sources of conflict. But we tend to ignore this in-between time when people are actually searching for refuge and the way in which our states tend to, our states, our Western states, and we're all in different Western countries, treat on the whole, asylum seekers who come to our countries and then refugees who are in other countries hoping for refuge or hoping for a real solution. Mm. Yeah, Serena, that's probably on average, right? It means that some people, I mean, if it's 17 years on average, it means some people are born in these refugee camps and they spend their entire you know, childhood up to their early adult stages over there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a wonderful book called City of Thorns by Ben Rollins, and he traces the, the refugee camps in Kenya and the lives of people, some of whom were born there. They have their own families there. They have their own lives, their own stories. You know, they're educated in these refugee camps, but then, of course, they're not allowed to work, so they can't do anything with their education. And there really is no refuge. There's no out for them for, for the foreseeable future. Your book includes a number of stories of refugees. Can you tell us about a couple of them and why you included them in the book? Sure. I include the stories that I do in the book to help readers shift their perspective away from thinking of refugees as people 
that we need to you know, decide what to do with how we're going to respond and really try to take their perspective on the crisis. So one story I like a lot is a story of Sina from Eritrea. And this is a story that's told by the journalist Sherlock McDonald Gibson. And when I read this story, I really identified with this person, uh, who's a real person who um, Charlotte McDonald Gibson, you know, traveled with and followed throughout her journey. And she, you know, she's a young woman. She's super smart. She gets a scholarship. She becomes an engineer. You know, I think we can all identify with this, you know, being a student and, um, you know, she falls in love and gets married. But Eritrea is such a repressive country that she has so little personal freedom. She's not, for example, allowed to live with her husband. In fact, they're stationed hundreds of miles apart from each other. And this might be tolerable if it were to happen for a few years, maybe, but uh, military conscription, everyone in Eritrea is automatically conscripted into the military for a lifetime until the, the government decides you're no longer you know, able to serve a purpose. So she was essentially not able to live with her husband. He breaks a you know, arbitrary law. He goes to jail. He kind of escapes and um, comes to visit her. And then she finds out she's pregnant. And she realizes if she, you know, turns herself in and admits what happened, you know, they're both liable to go to jail. And in the jails are not jails that we understand them to be, but they're horrible, fetid places. She would likely be tortured and lose her baby. And I like this story because if you can, you can imagine yourself in her situation, you know, you're about to start your life, you have a, you finished studying, you've started working, you want to start a family, and you just can't. What, what would you do? Would you just stay and allow yourself to be put in jail? Would you allow your baby to die? You would do it. I would do everything I could possibly imagine. So if you're Eritrean, this means leaving the country. And it means, you know, um, collecting money from your family, whoever else will, is willing to help you, to pay smugglers at every step of the journey, to get out of Eritrea, to get out of Africa, to get to the Mediterranean, to get, of course, across the Mediterranean. And you might think, well, why couldn't she just go live in a refugee camp? I mean, there's so many refugee camps in Africa. And the answer is because in Eritrea, the military state is so brutal that they actually have spies throughout Africa and in refugee camps. So if you want to be really sure that you're not going to be dragged back to Eritrea and dragged back to jails, you really have to leave the continent. And that means going to Europe. So I think many people can identify with her story, and, and it's actually a very dramatic story that I tell in several parts throughout the, the book. So I won't give it away unless you'd like me to tell you more about it. <laughs> um, it's, it's a very compelling story. And my hope by including stories was that we could, we could start to think a little bit from the perspective of refugees and then try to be able to better understand the ethical implications of this. But of course, I tell the story of refugees. I also have a story, a first person story from a human trafficker who is very happy to tell some journalists about his business trafficking, how he's managed to sort of innovate his business and torture people more effectively and gain more money. And he's not ashamed and he's not shy because he knows nobody cares. The government doesn't care. Nobody's going to stop him. Wow. So that also, I think, is a very striking perspective. And then I conclude the book with stories of people who go out of their way to help refugees, even when they risk great 
at great personal cost and great personal risk to themselves. So I tell the story of Hans, who's a shepherd in Austria, and he's Jewish, and he grew up hearing stories about the Holocaust and people helping Jews flee Nazi Germany. And then he learns about Syrian refugees and how they're being treated in Hungary. And of course, at that point, they're just trying to get to Germany. So he helps smuggle them out of Hungary through Austria uh, to Germany and then potentially to Sweden. Had he been caught with, you know, refugees in the back of his car, he could have been prosecuted for human trafficking, spent years in jail. Uh, but he said, like, he didn't care. He couldn't, he couldn't not help them. There was, he, was, he couldn't see people suffer in this way and just turn a blind eye to them. Um, so I include a bunch of other stories like that of just regular people who, you know, decide to go against the status quo and, you know, insist on helping refugees, even when other people want to treat them like criminals. So I think this is a different way to change our perception of how we respond to refugees. It doesn't have to be like this. And when we see people rejecting the status quo, we realize, oh yeah, we don't have to go along with this either. So you, in a way you're trying to reconstruct or, or, or rebuild almost the entire, you know, kind of difficult and very complex world of, of the refugee experience from many different perspectives, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's some incredible stories. Um, often, often Western states are sought after for refuge. So um, what role have Western states played in shaping what you call the second crisis for refugees? And can you also explain to us what the second crisis is? Yeah, let me start by explaining why I think there are two separate crises that we need to attend to. And we need to look at both crises. I think the first crisis is the crisis for Western states. So most people in Western democracies have seen the uptick in asylum seekers as something of a crisis. If we think about it as starting in 2015 with the European refugee crisis and the Syrian refugees, you know, more than a million arriving in Europe in that summer, uh, it seemed overwhelming and it seemed for many people that we didn't know how to respond. Perhaps we weren't able to respond. I know, of course, Australia has dealt with similar things. The U.S. has done, dealt in dealing with asylum seekers coming from Central America for a long time, for not for a long time, but for a few years now. And in all of these cases, it was a crisis for us. How can we deal with refugees who may be in, somewhat sympathetic? to a lot of discourse of refugees as being terrorists, especially in the U.S., but being sexual predators in you know, the European context predominantly, and as being criminals throughout. And so it really feels like a crisis for us. So we're being confronted with all of these really scary kinds of people. I don't want to diminish that because I think it is a crisis in some important respects that we need to think about. But at the same moment, there's a different crisis going on. And this is the crisis of refuge that I mentioned earlier. So I think we can understand this crisis from the point of view of refugees themselves when we try to think through what our options might be if we were forced to flee our countries for whatever reason. The crisis is not merely that they're forced to flee their homes, which many people I think acknowledge, but it's also that once they do, once they ask for help, there is virtually no help available. But the first one is refugee camps, which is the go-to way of helping refugees, which in some ways provides some security and some shelter, but are in no way adequate to deal with refugees in the long term. Because they're so inadequate, 
refugees have been refusing to go to them. So the second option then becomes just living informally in urban centers where fewer than one in 10 refugees actually have any access to international aid. Very few children are in school. There's very little access to healthcare. Housing, of course, is insecure. And work, which is the, the draw of living in the city, is precarious at best. And people are in debt. Um, they sometimes have to send their children to work just in order to not starve. And because these, these, these are the two effective options, and because they're so inadequate, increasingly people have been choosing to go directly to Europe, the US, Australia, et cetera, and claim asylum. But of course, to do that, because of deterrence policies that have emerged, because these routes have gotten increasingly dangerous, you have to use the smuggler. They've, they've essentially professionalized smuggling. So for, for migrants and refugees, smugglers are heroes, they're saviors, they're the only people willing to help them in a world that's effectively abandoned them. So I know the discourse around smugglers is that they're horrible. And they are. I mean, it's not that they care about refugees, but for the refugees themselves, for asylum seekers, they see them as the only ones willing to help them. So this is the crisis that I think is, goes along with the crisis for ref Western states. And it's really hard for us, I think, those of us who live in Western countries, to understand our implications, the implications of these two crises without also understanding the second crisis for refugees. There is no option, yeah. A question following this, uh, by comparing, you know, the crisis that we Westerners face to the ones that they actually, you know, face, which in my opinion and probably yours as well, are much more dire and, and there's no possible, you know, comparing the two situations. Are you trying to make Westerners a little more aware of what it actually is for, for a refugee, what it actually takes to abandon their, their countries and, and, and the whole, you know, kind of odyssey that it, that it entails. Because just listening to, to the fact that, you know, smugglers are heroes for them, just, you know, kind of like shapes, shapes the perspective, changes, you know, the whole, the whole idea almost that one has about it. Right. Yeah, that's the whole purpose of my book is to really shape how people see refugees and asylum seekers and what they're asking for. The preface to the book goes into detail about why refugees aren't criminals, they're not terrorists, they're not sexual predators, um, at least not any more than any other group of people, and they're actually much less likely to commit crime than domestic-born populations. So once we kind of abandon these fears we have, we are in a position to say, well, what's going on here? What, why, would you, why would you put your newborn baby in a raft? that you know may very well sink crossing the Mediterranean. You know, why would you go across land using smugglers and risking, you know, all kinds of violence just to claim asylum in a country that you know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, doesn't want you, may reject you, may detain you, may put you in an offshore processing facility. Why on earth would you do that? And unless you understand what options people in these situations have, it really doesn't make any sense. And you might even seem rational to think, oh, well, they must just be criminals. They must just be trying to take advantage of our system. So once we understand, no, if you really have to leave your country, and we acknowledge that many people are, are forced to, to do this, Syrian refugees maybe being the paradigmatic case at the moment. Somehow I feel like Syrian refugees, as opposed to... I mean, in, in the U.S., we, we don't get as many refugees from Myanmar, from Yemen, and, but we're, we're more cognizant of the situation in Syria and what people are fleeing from in that sense. It's a simpler conflict in a way, 
we get that there's a civil war, we get that the regime is brutal, we've acknowledged it, we can see why people have to leave that country if they want to stay alive. So I think that's why, that's all I mean when I say they're paradigmatic of refugees, but you're absolutely right. I think of refugees from Myanmar, going to Bangladesh, people from Yemen, people from Eritrea. I mean, of course the list goes on and on and seems to change and yeah, we, we, could, we could go on about that for a long time. <laughs> Indeed. Serena, uh, who should we blame for the situation that refugees are in? You say that most refugees cannot get refuge. Whose fault is that? Is it the U.S.'s? I mean, Europe's? Is it, you know, kind of a, the state system? Is it capitalism? What, what can we, can we pinpoint something that is generating this situation? Yes and no. One thing I try really hard to do in my book is to develop a moral framework that doesn't require us to pinpoint someone to blame the harm on. I think that when we start to, I think it's an important and valid question to think about the cause of the situation, to think about the way the international system works, to think about how global capitalism has functioned. And those are really important questions. But I think they're less important if we're interested in thinking about helping refugees and who has the responsibility to help refugees. What I argue in my book is that the global refugee crisis should be understood as a kind of structural injustice rather than as an injustice that was caused by, you know, Western imperialism or global capitalism. And what a structural injustice is, is an injustice where there's an unjust outcome, fewer than 2% of refugees are able to get any kind of meaningful refuge, but no one actor deliberately and intentionally caused the harm. We can't easily trace, there's no causal chain from the harm back to a singular actor. So what that means then is a political responsibility has to be assigned in virtue of how we're connected to the situation. So I think it's really important because I think blame and shame really turn people away from facing the problem. And it's much better to try to blame other people for not doing enough or shift focus. And the conversation gets easily derailed away from how can we make the situation more just going forward? to you have to do it, no, you have to do it. So my goal in the, writing the book is how can we make conditions for refugees more just in the future? And that's why I think this question of shame and blame is not the most important one. And in fact, once we frame it as a structural injustice, we see all kinds of different possibilities for addressing it. And it's almost like if, um, if you are able to blame someone else, it kind of, um, rids you of like almost a personal responsibility maybe to you feel like I can blame someone else it's not my problem and it's not I don't have to do anything about it but absolutely and I feel like that's been the discourse around refugees well we've done enough well we help them in this way well you haven't done enough there and really it's your fault because of you know this and and yeah, I think you're exactly right. So I think it relieves totally the burden different. from individuals. It's too backward looking and it avoids the question, how can we make things better going forward? And it almost remo removes like the human, like I'm a human, they're a human, like rather than I'm from this state, they're from this state, they're coming into this state. It's just like, no, we're all just humans. And if you're in this situation, you would want someone to help you as well. So. Exactly. We're all part of this larger global structure that we contribute to and benefit from. Yeah. And not only that, we can't rationally explain where, why we were born in one place and not the other. It's just like, 
you know, it's so completely random that we, I was born in Spain and you were born in Australia and maybe the United States and not in Eritrea or Syria or, so it's, it's, it's almost like just fair to think that, you know, just because of that randomness, you know, they deserve just as many opportunities as we do and we should provide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so recently the European Commission has released uh, its a refugee policy, the Pact for Migration and Asylum. That was on the 23rd of September. Uh, and the pact aims to resolve serious flaws from the previous refugee policy adopted by the EU that placed the responsibility for asylum claims on the member state of first entry. The new pact aims to distribute the responsibility more evenly across the EU and I guess um, maybe taking away from that blame thing, sharing the responsibilities. However, a large amount of criticism exists around the effectiveness of the new pact. Uh, what are your views on, on it? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, I'm happy to see some of the language in the document around human rights, of course, but I share many of the concerns that others have written about this. Before I say what my concerns are, let me say something positive about it. I do really appreciate the reference to human rights of asylum seekers and refugees and that this can't be overlooked. I, I applaud the centrality of monitoring human rights violations at border stations. I think that's great. And one of the critiques one could level against this is that it's mere rhetoric. And they're, they're saying that the refugees have rights and we should care about them. And yet things are so bad for refugees and asylum seekers that I appreciate even the verbal acknowledgement that refugees and asylum seekers have rights that ought to be taken into consideration. I know in the US right now, it sometimes feels like we're not even trying. <laughs> you know, there was recently a report about the child separation policy and we learned that the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions had instructed his officials to take away kids from their parents, no matter what age. And when he was told, well, we've had to separate a, a, an infant breastfeeding from its mother, he replied, like, I don't care. Like, that's what we have to do. We have to prosecute them. So I feel sometimes in some contexts, we don't even pretend to care about the human rights of migrants and refugees, even infants. Uh, even people who have ostensibly, who have clearly not committed any kind of fault. So, but it's almost, Serena, sorry, it's almost like, uh, you know, the Jeff Sessions attitude is cynical while the European Union's attitude is hypocritical because, mm. you know, there's a lot of talk, is what you're saying, there's a lot of talk about human rights and there's a lot of talk about, you know, laws and, and the refugee convention, but, but they're not enforced, they're not followed. I mean, it's just right. on paper. Yeah. This, this is what struck me about the, the pact. It describes itself as being a compromise between what I take to be the humanitarian obligations to asylum seekers, and then I think what, what I call the first crisis, the sense that there are many states who believe that well, we've done enough for refugees, they're not a problem, we shouldn't help them. And I think in, in framing it like that, they can see too much to the anti-refugee camp that says, well, maybe we have done too much. Maybe it isn't our problem. Maybe we can, um, you know, the, the, maybe we can help refugees by not really helping them. What I mean by that is, of course, there's this language of burden sharing throughout, which is absolutely important and a, and a principle that I support. But of course, I think it should be shared globally, not just within the European Union. 
But the idea that you could discharge your burden sharing by sponsoring the return of a rejected asylum seeker is really, uh, what's the word, surprising, to, to put it mildly. I mean, when I read it, I thought, oh, I must, be, I must have read that wrong. Because it really seems to be, I mean, I can see why the EU did it, right? It's a way of, of getting buy-in from countries like Hungary and Poland who are inhospitable to refugees and insist on seeing them as threats. But I can't help thinking that this will create a stronger incentive not to help refugees, to drive down recognition rates, and then to still get acknowledgement for, you know, doing your part in the refugee system. And that the incentive that this gives to all European countries to, to share the burden by helping and deporting refugees rather than actually by creating a welcoming environment um, resettling refugees, etc. You know, so my main concern, my main question in looking at this is that does this pact actually allow refugees to have refuge while countries are determining their outcome? In, in my view, countries do have a morally legitimate right to reject asylum seekers if they don't fulfill the criteria they've laid out for refugees, assuming this criteria is clear and fair and so on, and states are doing their fair share. While they're doing that, are refugees able to access the minimum conditions of human dignity? And there was nothing in it to really give me confidence that that would be the case. So I, I don't think, while they, while they have a right to reject asylum seekers, they don't have a right to treat them as though they don't have the right to dignified treatment and security. Um, so will this pact make it more or less likely that asylum seekers will be returned to the horrors of Libyan detention camps? Will fewer people die at sea, not because they've been detained in jail, but because they've genuinely had better options? You know, will the so-called temporary camps at the perimeter of countries like Greece actually provide the minimum conditions of human dignity uh, and give people a reasonable hope that they'll be able to have a, an answer, a solution in a manageable amount of time? And I don't know. I don't know that there was any thing to indicate that they were taking seriously that aspect of the crisis. And I also worry about cooperation with uh, countries of origin and transit, as the phrase goes, such as Libya. Given what we know about Libya now, given what's been well and repeatedly documented about the treatment of migrants in Libya, especially migrants who are returned to Libya, it seems to me we should be doing everything possible to avoid supporting sending migrants to this country. And just finally, you know, the, they mentioned the cooperation that's going to be involved in setting up a new re reception center in the aftermath of the Moria fire. But there was no acknowledgement for of how bad life was in this in this camp. I was going to say this detention facility, but refugee camp or reception center, as it's sometimes called, and it's. Horrible, and we know from interviews with refugees who were who had to leave the camp from the fire that they would prefer to sleep on the street than to go back to this camp. That's how bad it was. And over and over, we've built camps that are supposed to be temporary, that become long-term ways of housing refugees that are simply inadequate to the needs of refugees. And I saw nothing in the pact that acknowledged that or would prevent that from happening again. I mean, if anything, this is part of the balance. This is part of the compromise between the two sides that it seemed like they were trying to reach. So I, I think it's important that 
the European countries are trying to think through this and trying to think about how to get buy-in from other countries in ways that would allow them to live up to their human rights commitments. But of course, we need much, much more to this. And I think even agreeing that this is a meaningful way to discharge burdens can be really problematic. Right. So now, why focus on ethics when it comes to refugees? Aren't other things such as economics, culture, or politics more important? I think those things are very important, absolutely. But I also think ethics has to be part of the conversation when it comes to dealing with refugees. After all, we're dealing with human beings. And to simply ignore their well-being in favor of policy considerations, security considerations, economic considerations, just isn't right. We somehow think of ethics as a luxury when it comes to refugees, when it comes to treating with, dealing with others, other non-citizens who are asking for entrance into our countries, and inapplicable to this domain. And I just don't think this is the right way to think about things. It's not that politics isn't important, it's not that economics isn't important, but I think ethics has to be part of the debate. And once we have this debate, we can think about how to balance all of these other considerations. But the interesting thing to me is that when you, when you look at ethical theories and how they might evaluate the current status quo, in fact, if you look at religion, and I look at Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, there's a consensus that the way we treat refugees is not morally justifiable. There's what philosophers call an overlapping consensus that the current status quo is simply not supportable on any ethical or religious framework. And on the other side, there's strong grounding for supporting helping refugees in very profound ways from virtually every ethical theory and every religious tradition. So I, I feel like people exclude ethics in part because they don't want to acknowledge that, that we simply shouldn't be doing what we're doing. We need to think much more deeply about the harms that we're, we're causing by doing this. And so I think once you introduce ethics, it really starts to chip away at the status quo and the idea that we have to treat refugees and asylum seekers like security threats, like criminals, like predators, instead of as vulnerable human beings that we owe something to in virtue of sharing the world with them. And your book tries to give reasons for why we have moral duties to refugees. Can you explain your argument and how, how is this different from what other philosophers think or what Christianity, Islam and Judaism believe? I'd be happy to. Let me start with how my view is different from other philosophers. Philosophers, by and large, haven't really engaged with ethical issues around refugees until relatively recently. And when they do, they focus on what I call the ethics of admission, what our moral obligations are to admit refugees or asylum seekers into our countries. Do we have morally justifiable grounds to exclude some refugees? Are we obliged to take in all refugees who want to come here? And if so, on what grounds? And my criticism of this is not so much that it's wrong as that it's too narrow. It focuses on the idea of resettlement, which as I mentioned, fewer than 1% of refugees have access to. 
Now you might think, well, if we just resettled more people, then maybe this wouldn't be a solution. But there's good reason to think that many refugees actually don't want to be resettled. Many refugees would like a more flexible option where they can stay in the region closer to their home countries in case they're able to go home. They would prefer to be with co-nationals or people who speak their language or share their religion. So it's important to think of our ethical obligations to help refugees wherever they find themselves and the ways in which we support things like refugee camps, in, which inadequately help refugees, in addition to the ways that we frame resettlement as an individual country's decision rather than something that could be shared more more globally and built upon and developed in a, in a much richer way. So I think when you frame the refugee crisis as a structural injustice, we have to start thinking about how we can support policies to help refugees around the world and not just on refugees that come to Western countries. And then I build on, I think, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism and their belief on the centrality of helping the alien, the orphan, and the widow, helping people who are vulnerable and who are have been excluded from society mm. yeah so a bit of a kind of like a, a global census on how to help the refugee where everyone can not agree but have input and is that is that sort of what you mean yeah, in a, yeah in a way, in part. acknowledging that this is a global problem and therefore needs a global solution right it's almost like uh you know like uh the climate change you know threat it's like or global warming either we implement global laws that everybody fulfills or the problem will just keep increasing it's just not you know it's not feasible to actually for example try to lower the the, the emission of the fossil fuels and have the united states not fulfill it because then we're all going down this is the same thing. It's a global problem. It needs global binding laws. It needs a global approach. It needs about sharing burden, sharing the burden amongst countries, et cetera, et cetera, right? It absolutely, it needs to be seen as a genuinely global problem. One that we all have to play a role in addressing because we're responsible for setting it up in the way that we do, in the way that it currently functions. Yeah. Yeah. We set it up that way structurally so we have the ability and the power to change it sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Going back to the personal moral duty um, or moral beliefs uh, surrounding refugees, um, I feel at times when people focus on the burden that refugees bring to a country. So for example, I've had conversations here in Australia where sometimes they th people think refugees come and they use our resources and I said, but there is a way like they contribute to our society as well. They're, they're professionals and then they come and work. And, but at the same time, when they're trying to seek uh, refuge, sometimes, for example, their qualifications, their work qualifications don't fit in with the national qualifications. It makes it really hard. And I just I feel like some of these issues we don't think about and there's a bit of an inability for onlookers to put themselves in the shoes of refugees. So how do you feel we can decrease this degree of separation, I guess, and get people thinking about refugees in a more empathetic way? I think this is such an important question. And I don't think it's an accident that this is the view we have of refugees. I think in part, 
one of the effects of keeping refugees in camps and refugee camps that are far, far away from, from us is that we become unfamiliar with them. They become strange. We don't understand their experiences. And then, like you said, when they come to our countries, they tend to be vilified as, you know, net drains on our economy when all the research suggests it's the opposite. They are actually net contributors. But nonetheless, the, the language of vilification is so strong and so ubiquitous that people uh, can't help but think of them in this way. So the gap in empathy, I think, really serves the status quo. And it serves the interests of politicians to maintain the status quo in the way that it does. I wrote my book precisely with this in mind, hoping that the stories that I include and the arguments that I can make can help to bridge this gap. It's also why I think that one of the main ways we can undermine the unjust conditions that refugees find themselves in is by seeing them, reading their words, watching documentaries about them, reading novels or by them and about them and accounts written by journalists. Because once you start to see things from their perspective, the status quo becomes more and more intolerable. And I think we will quickly demand that something be done about it once we realized how much uh, we've kind of been lied to about refugees and, and what they really could do for our societies and our countries if we were to actually give them a fair evaluation. Hope that it works. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm definitely going to share it with as many as many people as possible over here in Spain. Uh, I, I feel thank that you. you know, in terms of, of of politics, the politicians really know how to play into the you know the politics of fear, and then the typical scapegoating of problems. And refugees have definitely been part of this whole discourse. Right now, there's a huge growth in in Europe in terms of the extreme right parties that actually make immigration and refugees a center part of their, you know, hatred speech. So we definitely need to, you know, try to engage more people and explain to them that, that refugees are just people like us who, you know, were unlucky to be born in one place or, or who were caught in the middle of warfare or, you know, exploitation, persecution, et cetera, so that, you know, by relating to them, we can actually make a, better, a bigger effort and a better job at, at, at helping them. Yeah, right. agree more. Um, yeah, so um, Serena, we spoke with Matea Vaje, who is Sea-Watch's cultural mediator on board and LAG spokesperson. How important are organizations and operations such as Sea-Watch and the activities they carry out? Uh, I think they're extremely important. They serve this role of um, challenging governments and their unjust policies around rescuing migrants. So we know that, you know, the EU, of course, withdrew some of their uh, sea rescue missions, even though they were wildly successful in saving people's lives because they thought of it as a push factor that it would encourage people to come without realizing that people are going to come anyway not because they feel like they're going to be rescued, but because they're leaving circumstances that are that they find to be utterly intolerable. So people keep coming. And without these rescue missions, they just die in larger numbers when they have the misfortune of having their boats capsized or having something happen to them. So these organizations that really defy, in some cases even defy the law, to rescue migrants at sea are fundamental in, of course, doing their the humanitarian job that we ought to be doing 
at the state level, but then of course pointing out that we cannot just let refugees die in the sea because they've made this what they think of as the only possible choice they could have made under the circumstances. Yep. Do you believe funding from international organizations and states is a potential solution to the ethical roadblocks we see in global refugee policy today? Yes, absolutely. It is, but it has to be rethought in important ways. So right now we spend 90% of our funding on refugees on refugees who arrive in our countries. We spend 90% of the funding that we spend on refugees who come into you know, the US, Europe, Australia. We spend 10% of our funding on the 90% of refugees who remain in the global south. If we were to, I mean, I, I, I'm not advocating spending less on refugees who are here, but if we invested more wisely in programs in the global south that would help refugees, that would help the countries that would host them, and that would increase economic development all around, it could be a very effective way of addressing some of the systemic problems that, you know, that result in refugees claiming asylum in Western countries on the one hand, and the, the circumstances that they're fleeing from, so urban poverty, for example, or refugee camps. So, so I absolutely think it's a, it's a plausible solution, but it has to be done really thoughtfully. So for example, we know that one of the most effective ways to help refugees is cash transfers, which is surprising. You might think, oh, no, no, NGOs know what's best for refugees, and they know how much food, but, but we've studied this now, and we know that, in fact, refugees who are able to spend cash in local economies actually get the things they believe are best for their families and their own development and survival, gives them a level of agency they don't currently have, and tends to be good for local economies as well. So thinking about smarter, more efficient ways of giving aid. One other thing I wanted to mention that the, the pact doesn't include that I think solutions for refugees have to include is just the voice of refugees what do they say they need? What do they say would be helpful? What would be an adequate way of protecting their human rights in these situations? So when it comes to helping refugees, we could, of course, have a refugee council at high level, you know, at the UNHCR or in the you know, various EU um, committees. Uh, but we can also ask them. And when we say, well, what do you need? We might think, oh, they just want food. But no, what they want is electricity, the internet, and cash. Again, they want autonomy. They want to be able to, to help themselves. They want to be able to provide these goods for their families by themselves. So it's a very different model of helping refugees than the one we're used to thinking of, where we think, oh, they just want our money. We just must donate money. But we can. We should, of course, be willing to do that. But to do it in these ways that actually are aim at helping refugees access the minimum conditions of human dignity, not just checking a box that says, okay, well, we've given aid for the year and we've done our part. So providing them with the tools for them to build their own lives and not just giving them the, the result of that, right? Not just the fish, but the fishing. The fishing. Yeah, I mean, we don't even give them the fish now. So I don't want to take that metaphor too far. <laughs> um, and also I think what they need to rebuild their lives is also surprising to many of us. It's not necessarily a fishing pole. It's you know, a YouTube channel on fishing, perhaps. And, <laughs> and so to really adapt these things that refugees need for the 21st century, given the conditions that they actually find themselves in, 
given their needs and so forth. Um, you know, and if you ask women who are not, who are different from refugee men, they want these, the things that I mentioned as well. And they want things like basic sanitary tampons and things like that, which prisoners also say that they want, because what's, it's necessary in order to go out in the world and live with dignity. And we forget that unless we actually are in touch with these communities and with people who are able to articulate these things. Uh, one last question, Serena. If people are convinced by your book that we should be doing more to help refugees, what do you say to the reader who asks what they should be doing right now? Is donating money to refugee charities enough? I get asked this question a lot. This is probably the question I get asked more than anything else because people read my book and it makes you feel terrible and you want to do something. And so I think it's really, really important. I was once giving a talk at a synagogue and they did a canned food drive. And I said to them, no, 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 don't do that. Like don't ask people to donate cans. And I meant to kind of joke, half jokingly, I think you should still bring cans to canned food drives and you should still donate money. But if that's all you do, and that's what you do and you feel like you've done enough and you should absolutely not do it. My own view on this and for other issues of justice is that there has to be a balance between individual action and addressing structures and just taking individual action that doesn't bear any relationship to actually addressing unjust structures is insufficient. So I think we have to go back and forth so if we, well, what structures, what should we be supporting? What should we be doing? The answer is actually that there's no shortage of solutions that really creative, thoughtful people have proposed for uh, policies that would actually help refugees to access the minimum conditions of human dignity while they're refugees. So not even solutions. I don't mean even resettlement and asylum, although those are important parts of it. But how could we support refugees' dignity while they're refugees? How, so one you know, suggestion, of course, is to support local integration of refugees in the global south. So to not support refugee camps and to not ignore urban refugees, but actually support schools, hospitals, villages, et cetera, that actually allow refugees to integrate, however temporarily. And we can do this in some of the ways we discussed earlier, through cash transfers, through internet, through electricity, and so forth. Um, you know, so encouraging private-public partnerships that would allow refugees to work, which is maybe the single biggest thing that refugees ask for. Encouraging some kinds of political partnerships, political participation, even for non-citizens in communities where that and in policies that would be affected by them. And then, of course, I think at higher levels, refugees often have a larger role in setting policy and setting priorities and so forth. Um, okay, so those are some of the policy things we can do, and we ought to be supporting them. But here's where individuals come in, I think. None of those things are going to be supported if governments perceive their citizens to be indifferent to the plight of refugees. If we all say to our government, whatever you're doing is fine, you donate some money, that's great, we're all done here, nothing will ever change. So that's why I think the biggest imperative for individuals is to learn about refugees, to understand the structural injustices, I call it, and to learn about how we treat refugees. And even though I think it serves the state to keep this out of public focus, there's never been a time where we can learn as much about refugees as we do today. There are all kinds of journalists who I think, in my view, 
really bravely are going out into very uncomfortable circumstances, very dangerous circumstances, interviewing, living with, accompanying refugees, telling their stories as faithfully as they can. All kinds of really inter interesting documentaries are being made from uh, cell phone footage and other things that refugees themselves take. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's easier to learn about refugees than ever. And I think once people do, it becomes harder to, um, for governments to, to push forth policies that actually are either indifferent to refugees or harmful to them. So when we think about the European refugee crisis ending, you know, maybe by 2016, 2017, you look at those beautiful European train stations, there are no longer refugees there, and you think, oh, well, the crisis is over. It's been, it's been pushed out of, it's only over because it's been pushed out of sight, of course, because of the agreements with Libya and Turkey to prevent refugees from coming into the EU. So to, send, to be sent back to die a slow death in Libya or to remain impoverished in Turkey. The only way we can challenge those is that we actually come to know what's going on with refugees, what's happening to them, and then to demand from our governments that we speak out against these kinds of policies. And I'm a really unpopular speaker because I don't end with a kind of conclusion that says, yes, this is all we need to do. Here are three steps and the solution will, the crisis will be over and refugees will have refuge. So I like to just end by, by reminding listeners and readers that they need to avoid what the philosopher Hannah Arendt called reckless despair and reckless optimism. So reckless optimism I think is the view that says that, you know, if I, I've, I've learned about the problem, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna donate some money, I'm gonna write a couple of letters and the crisis will be solved. And when that doesn't happen, as it won't in the case of any kind of intractable structural injustice, you start to feel despair and you feel overwhelmed. You think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And it leads to what she called reckless despair. It says, oh, you know, this is just too big. We're never gonna fix it, it's too hard. And both of these lead to inaction. So what we need is an attitude of sustained moral motivation to return to the same task repeatedly and to have a continued renewal commitment. Because though it doesn't feel like it, we can change the status quo, but we only do when we insist that it's something that has to be done. Well, thank you so much, Serena, for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Mm. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Mm -hmm.